Hello, welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey, and I'm so glad that you are joining us today on this um, beautiful early September morning. Um, The movie Groundhog Day is one of those iconic movies in movie history. Uh, It follows um, this storyline of Phil Connors with some iconic moments where it's Ned, um, where Phil is literally stuck inside of this reoccurring day. Uh, it's Groundhog Day. He's in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, and he's waiting for this groundhog to pop up and to show its shadow or not show its shadow. And the movie's um, kind of funny for some of the moments that you kind of see play out. It's every morning, the, the Sonny and Cher song, I've Got You, Babe, starts playing on the radio, the alarm, and all the activities of the day are the exact same thing. And he's stuck in this kind of bizarre world. Um, One of the reasons that I love human beings is because of the Internet. One of the reasons I do not like human beings is because of the Internet. But specifically in this case, what I love about human beings is um, a group of people uh, have tried to figure out how long was Phil Connors stuck in Groundhog Day. And based on some actually really mathematically thorough calculations and even uh, Harold Remus, who was the director Um, And him speaking into it, um, it's estimated that Phil Connors spent 12,403 days in that one day, Groundhog Day. That's over 33 years if you're doing the math. That 12,403 days of the same day. Um, To give you another mathematical equivalent of 12,403 days, that's about what it feels like has passed since March Um, Okay, so that's what it feels like, and that's what it felt like for him. And throughout this series, and really throughout this fall, I want to kind of tackle this sense that you and I have maybe felt uh, for a while. Around midsummer, I remember feeling like I had had 12,403 days go by in the last 30 days. Just felt like every day was the exact same thing as the day before. My daughter um, just got tired of, like, our hike. She would be like, Dad, can we not go hike today? Because there was nothing to do but hike. And just in full disclosure, in our family, hiking is walking outside when it's not your yard or your neighborhood. So if you walk outside, that's hiking, okay? Um, Because at one point during one of these conversations where I was like, let's go on a hike. She was like, oh, Dad, you love hiking. I was like, time out. That is like not true. I'm allergic to everything outside. Um, I am not what you would call a hiker. Um, but that's pretty much all our family could do. Um, in fact, one of my son's first words has been walk because he likes to go outside and walk around. And this idea, I found myself um, kind of mimicking what I used to do as a child when I would say, how much further, when are we going to get there? And he was like, well, you're not far. Right? Like, we're not far. We're almost there. And almost there sometimes felt like six hours and sometimes was six hours. And now as a parent, I understand that because I'm driving. We've made it on to 95, which is about two miles from my house. And my daughter will say, how much further? And I'm like, oh, sweetie, we just left. Like, 
we got a long way. You, you should take a nap, right? Like, we're not even close. But there's this tendency, we want to know, like, how much further till we finally get out of this thing? How much further till I can finally open up my business and have customers come back? How much further till I can have a classroom with kids? How much further till I can send my kids to a classroom with other kids? How much further? How long do we have left in this thing? This thing may be the pandemic or this thing may be some of the insanity playing out this fall with the election season. But whatever it may be for you and for me, I've kind of committed to myself this summer. I'm done with Groundhog Day. And I don't know about you, but if you want to co-sign with me on that phrase, I'm done with Groundhog Day, then I would say welcome to the series. Because what I want to talk about today and over the course of this month and really over the next few months is how do we break free of Groundhog Day, the sense that every day feels like the same, especially when we're looking at a fall that may turn into reliving the spring. And to kind of help us with that journey, I want to take you to a letter written to a church almost 2,000 years ago. It was a, a group of house churches scattered around the city of Ephesus. The letter now today is called the Letter of Ephesians because it was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And now Ephesus was the second largest city in the world at the time. It was over 250,000 people. It was only second to Rome, uh, which was the capital of the Roman Empire. Ephesus was an impressive city, both financially, economically, with the systems at play there. It was at a kind of a cross point of trade routes. It was a cultural center point where things happened there and spread from there. That Ephesus was a really important city to be in and it was also a challenging city you see inside of ephesus at the time paul's writing this letter is one of the ancient wonders of this of the kind of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world it was called the temple of artemis artemis was a greek god she was one of the most popular greek gods and she was like the greek goddess of a lot of things that don't seem to have anything to do with each other like wild animals hunting um like fertility i mean it was just kind of like all this stuff where you're like did you guys just run out of stuff and you just started throwing them on her because she was popular like what's the deal right but anyways so artemis had a temple in ephesus and the temple was about two football fields big so kind of picture two big football fields which doesn't feel that impressive but i want you to imagine you walk on the two football fields and surrounding that football field is 127 columns supporting a roof And those 127 columns are six feet in diameter, and they're 60 feet tall. And this is the ancient world. In in the modern age, some structure like that would be impressive. In the ancient world, you can see why it was one of the wonders, because it was amazing in its architectural accomplishment. It was bigger than the Pantheon, which was another significant kind of like, Um, architectural accomplishment of the ancient world and that when people people would travel to ephesus so that they could show up at the temple of artemis because there was a lot of people who worshiped artemis as one of the gods that they worshiped in the ancient world this made the city a little tense for a new religion coming in because here's this new religion that paul's speaking and teaching about called christianity and as he's teaching and preaching and proclaiming and telling people about jesus who is this resurrected rabbi, who is God in flesh, who's come to to restore the relationship between God and man. As he's going around sharing that, he's starting to bump up against one of the economic systems in the city. Because there's a 
whole tourism industry that's built around the Temple of Artemis. And Paul's teaching, implicationally and explicitly, is Artemis isn't even real. This temple is a waste of space. And a riot, an actual riot, breaks out in Ephesus because of Paul's teaching. Uh, They had an amphitheater of 25,000 that was regularly filled. I mean, this is a massive city, and being Christian in the city was challenging. There were external pressures. There were internal pressures. And it wasn't just when Paul was there. Um, In the New Testament, there's a series of letters that kind of bound together make up what we call the New Testament. And there's a group of letters towards the end of the New Testament called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They're called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John because they're named after John who wrote a series of three letters. And he wrote them to the church in Ephesus. John was living in Ephesus when he wrote them. Ephesus is the place that most likely Mary um, passed away. Her tomb is still there. John, that's where he would pass away. His tomb is in um, kind of the ruins of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey today. And so, like, this was a significant city that clashed with Christianity and yet had some of the most influential voices of Christianity present. And so Paul, writing this letter, understanding the challenges of what does it look like, how do you live out your faith, when you're surrounded by so much that would prevent you from living out your faith, both externally and internally with the pressures within the church. And so he writes these words to them in Ephesus, um, in what we call chapter 5 of the letter to Ephesians. He says, be very careful then. He's like, be very diligent. Be very intentional. Be very kind of cognizant of how you live. The word live is... Um, another is it's an idiom what he write, actually writes is how you walk it's like pay attention to the very steps that you take and the decisions you make the words that you say and the paths that you follow along the way he's like be careful be diligent in all of that why he's like i want you to do it not as someone who's unwise but as someone who is wise like he's saying look I recognize you live in a city that makes it very challenging to live out your faith. You live in a city that you wake up every day and the challenges you had in your faith that day felt like the challenges you had in your faith yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And there's this constant gravitational pull towards and against you to kind of suck you back into the life that you used to live with all the things that remind you of that life. He's like, but I want you to walk diligently paying careful attention to the very steps you take because the steps you take i don't know if you notice your feet kind of seem to lead your body so he's like i want you to to do this with wisdom and he says how do we do that well here's one of the ways that we can do it we make the most of every opportunity now the reason he's writing this towards the end of this letter is he realizes that's not our default our default is not to make the most of every opportunity. Our default is to waste time. Our default is to kind of sit and mindlessly kind of watch life pass us by. Our default is Tiger King. Right? Our default is to sit and veg, not to seize and seed for some harvest in the future. If it was our default to make the most of every opportunity, we would all be rich. We would all be really jacked. Um, we would, for the men, we'd all look like the rock because we'd recognize that that food we ate and the, the weights we could lift would make us look like that. And we would all have 
private jets because we would understand compounding interest and delayed gratification. Like we would understand all of those things, but that's not the default. And and the default sometimes even isn't even passivity. Sometimes the default is activity. In fact, um, I, I love history, and there's this interesting piece of um, historical fact. In World War II, while um, Hitler had conquered the continent of Europe, he turned his direction and gaze towards England. England, which was being led by that time by Winston Churchill, um, pretty amazingly stuck a flag in the ground in probably one of the most courageous moments in the 20th century, um, 20, uh, 21st century, um, to really said, look, we're not going to bend our knee to you, Hitler. And even though Churchill died almost 80 years ago, or 60 years ago, we still stand in awe of this like bold character and courage he had. So Hitler had a theory that he could break England by bombing them. And he would send over at night these bombing campaigns. Now the thing that made um, the, the Lufasa, or the, the kind of German military like Air Force, really successful, um, and I totally butchered that word, so forgive me, but was that they had technologically made some advancements that were um, really a broad leap ahead of any of the air forces in the known world. You see, they had figured out how to fly and bomb at night. See, during the day, it was easy to hit a bombing target. During a full moon, it was easy to hit a bombing target. But when it was a new moon, you basically flew over a dark world. And so what, what they had done is they would broadcast two beams, radio waves, and they would intersect those radio waves over the target. And so um, German bombers would take off and they would fly along the radio beacon and it would kind of go beep, beep. And then they would get to the intersection of the other one and they would hear beep, 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 which was the intersection of those two radio waves. And they would drop the bombs there. Now, because of that, London lived in terror because at night, even though England arguably had one of the best air forces in the world, the RAF, the reality was is that the RAF could not fly and fight at night. There was no airplane-based radar systems at the time. And so every night, the sirens would go off. And this is actual picture of um, Londoners sleeping in what's called the tube, which is the subway system in London, because Germans would fly over and they would bomb the city at night destroying pieces and portions of it it was devastating windows were blown out through most of the winter um it was just it was a really dark time period and churchill had an idea that you know instead of us just walking down the streets being reminded of what we can't do let's let's at night when the sirens go off i want the soldiers to go to the guns the air the kind of anti-aircraft guns mounted on the roofs around the city of london and i want them just to fire the guns into the air just fire them. They couldn't see the planes, so it didn't matter. Just shoot them. And I think in some ways what London's response to that war initially is a picture of what we do when we find ourselves in chaotic moments, when we find ourselves in moments where we don't know what to do. We just start to do anything because we feel like anything is better than nothing. And yet what it means to make the most of every opportunity is not activity. It's productivity. It's being intentional, moving towards something, not just movement. Movement doesn't fix things. Movement doesn't seize things. Movement makes us feel better. 
I don't, I don't know about you, but when I get really stressed, um, my wife can normally tell because I don't naturally like to say, oh, I really want to clean the countertop or I just want to sweep the floor. But she can normally tell when I get really, really stressed because I just start cleaning things. I'm like sorting stuff and stacking stuff and putting them in drawers and wiping down the, the table with like really high level industrial cleaner. And she's like, you're stressed, aren't you? And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. I'm very stressed. So I'm just doing something. And ironically, even in my attempts in those stressful moments where I'm just doing something, I, oftentimes I'm not doing the things that would actually relieve the stress. I'm stressed about finances, or I'm stressed about work, or I'm stressed about a relational issue, but I'm, I'm cleaning the table, or I'm sweeping the floor, which makes me feel like I'm doing something, but actually doesn't move me towards something. And it's actually a danger that we have to watch out for, because one of the things that can rob us of the opportunities is activity, not doing the things that we should do, because we're so just desperate that we'll do anything and that inside of this phrase is some directionality so the word opportunity is kind of got an interesting etymology or, or kind of root if you look at the word opportunity you'll notice inside of the word is the word port because the word opportunity actually comes from a sailing term when you would come into a harbor to if you were going to take advantage of the opportunity you would catch the wind that was blowing so that would blow you into the port. If you missed your opportunity, you missed the wind that you could guide to use to push the boat into the harbor. And so that's actually where the word opportunity comes from. It means to grab hold of the wind to take you right into the port. And this idea that Paul is trying to convey is that life isn't just a series of ticks on a clock. It's not just a series of days that we get up. It's seasons. There are moments. And that we have to be intentional about seeing the season we're in if we're going to seize it. If you're a parent, you know it's really easy, especially in retrospect, to look back and realize how valuable and how precious those first moments, that first year of life is. But when you're so exhausted and you're so tired, it's easy to, to miss it. It's amazing to me how many older people whose kids are out of the home who will say to me when they see us holding a baby or when, I see, when there's like a, a little baby around, they're like, oh, I miss those days. They're like, oh, I would pay money to go back and have those days. Yes, I was tired, but you don't know how precious they are in the moment. And I have that, uh, a nine-year-old, or soon to be, and there's moments when I'm holding my son and now he's walking and talking. And it's like, oh, those precious moments when they were just this little tiny potato sack in your arm, radiating heat and snuggly and sleepy. Right? That we have to see the season. That there's a season you have in your marriage right now. There's a season you have in this pandemic that we find ourselves in and it's really easy to miss the season you're in and to fixate on the season you were in or to dream about a season you will be in one day oh when this is finally done then i can go and do this and then i'll do this and we miss all the things we can do right now and he's saying look make the most of every opportunity there is a wind blowing right now in your life are you catching it are you noticing the wind present around you? Or are you cursing that wind and dreaming about some other one? 
Because the reality is one day that wind will shift and you won't be able to get it back. That this moment may feel really big for us. But in five or ten years from now, you won't think about 2020. You won't talk about 2020. Nobody's going to want to talk about 2020 five years from now. Right? We're all going to want to collectively forget this year. Maybe like when we're really older and our grandkids um, are like reading in the history books about 2020 and they're like, Granddaddy, will you tell me about the great COVID-19 of 2020? And I'm like, of course, grandson, sit here upon my knee and let me tell you about the days of wearing masks and the, the struggles that we faced when we wanted to go shop and we would have to order things and wait days, sometimes two, in order to get a box delivered to our house and groceries. Oh my goodness, they said it was Instacart, but it was anything but. Sometimes it was hours before they dropped your luggage and your, your, your groceries off at your doorways. Oh, grandson, it was horrible. Now, I don't know why my grandson's going to have a British accent or why I'm going to have some British accent. Because I, I, maybe I'm hoping because I love the British so much and I read so much British history, it's just leaking out. But like... That's probably what 2020 will be one day. It'll be nostalgia. It'll be kind of humorous. And they'll be like, I'll be like, oh, grandson, we used to, you know, watch. You would have to, like, sit in front of a screen for education. Oh, really? That's what mommy did? Yes, mommy watched and learned on a television screen while she was Zooming. Right? Oh, that sounds a lot like our holograms today. No, no, no. It was worse. I know you have holograms now, but back then it was bad. It was called Zoom, and it would stutter, and people would go and talk like this right here, and you would have to. And people would try to talk over you. Like, one day this moment will be past. But there are so many things that I haven't talked about in this moment that are actually worth seizing. That's why the word most, he uses this word, this word actually means buy back and redeem. He's saying redeem this time. I know this time feels like it's been hijacked from you. I know this time feels like it's been robbed from you. But buy it back. Redeem it. Get it back from what took it from you. Like, I'm done living in Groundhog Day. I refuse to participate. I will smash my radio if Sonny and Cher start to sing, I got you, babe, because I ain't got it. I'm done with Groundhog Day. I'm about grabbing a hold of my day, not Groundhog Day. Because I don't care if this fall looks like this spring. This fall will not be this spring for me. I'm going to redeem it. So maybe the spring stunk. Maybe Zoom meetings were horrible. But that doesn't mean i got to relive it. I mean, I can do something about it. We can make sure as parents that we don't relive the, the challenge that the spring remote learning had, even if we're doing it in the fall. We don't have to relive the isolation of the spring if we have to redo it in the fall. There are some things that we can do differently. And that the reason we can do that is we recognize that there is another way of approaching this thing than just the Groundhog Day. In fact, Paul gives us a helpful piece of information. He says, you want to do this, you want to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, which is an interesting phrase, right? He's like, why are you going to live wisely? Why are you going to try to make the most of every opportunity? Because the days are evil, because that's not the default to this world. The default is not to make the most of every opportunity. 
the default is to drift. And you and I will not drift into the relationships that we want in our lives. You and I will not drift into the financial situation we want to be in in our life. You and I will not drift into health. We will not drift into emotional health. We will not drift into the job we want. We will not drift into anything that we actually desire because the days are evil. It's a broad sweeping statement that Paul's making about the world that's driven by entropy, that's driven by disorder, that's driven by drifting towards the things you don't want. Because everything you and I want are upstream. Everything. Great relationships, never ever met a couple who's been married for 50 years and you ask them, how did you make it this far? How is your marriage so strong? And they're like, I don't know. We just kind of drifted into it. Meet someone who's been really financially successful. Hey, how did you get here? How did you build that business? I don't know. I just kind of drifted into it. That's not the norm. And he's saying it's foolish. When he says, therefore, do not be foolish. It's like, don't think that way. Don't think that the expectation is life is easy because it's not. When you live in a world that is to use his overarching, encompassing theological statement that says the world is broken, the world is not the way it is. And in case you're, maybe you're like not really necessarily theologically kind of into this thing, you don't have to agree with me to to, to say, I would say, look in your pocket. Why do you have keys? You have keys because we live in a world where if you didn't, someone would take it from you. If the world was grand and great, We wouldn't need keys. We wouldn't lock the most valuable things that we have. You'd walk up to your car and it would open up for you and you would just, I don't know, do something. Tell tell Siri to start it, right? We wouldn't need keys. We wouldn't need to lock our doors at night. And the world is broken. And it's not just the world, we are broken too. And that's why our biggest enemy isn't, Someone from the other side politically, it's the person in the mirror that you see every day. The person in the mirror is often the one keeping you from the life you actually want. And Paul's saying, look, don't be foolish. Recognize this is the challenge that you and I have in front of us. Expect that because the world is broken that it'll be hard sometimes. And hard's not bad. Hard is just hard. Something we say in our house a lot when something is hard. I expect good things to be hard things. And I'm pleasantly surprised when they're not. I'm delighted and surprised by easy, not hard. Whenever I do something that that is a worthwhile thing, I expect because of the way the world is, it'll be a challenge. And for those Christians in Ephesus trying to live out their faith, Paul is saying, look, it's going to be hard. It'll be hard to take a stand. It'll be hard to live out your convictions. It'll be hard to to be swimming upstream when everything else is rushing downstream. It'll be easy to fall into the traps and the ideas and the current trends and popularities and groupthink that everyone else has. It's harder to take a stand. It's harder to fact check. It's harder to read and to be knowledgeable. It's harder to be disciplined and diligent and pay attention to the steps that you take and the words that you say and you don't say. It's hard not to open your mouth when you want to open your mouth. It's hard to not comment on some post that you think is idiotic. 
But that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's hard. And hard is good. And on the other side of hard is the health that you want. On the other side of hard is the finances you want. On the other side of hard is the life you want. On the other side of hard is the spiritual life you want. And that we have to be careful. Therefore, do not be foolish. And what is, how does he end it? He says, but, be, but understand what the Lord's will is. Um, I don't know if you follow a lot of the news. Um, it can be quite depressing. Um, especially if you pay attention to anything coming out of California. I have friends in California, and uh, there are days where I feel like it's just going to like break off and fall into the, the ocean because it's just insane. Um, but one of the things that was happening towards the end of August and is actually still playing out even as we speak today is a series of um, lightning fires that were started in California, some of the largest California fires in their history. And one of the specific fires um, has, has played out in the Santa Cruz Mountains in the Big Basin Redwood um, area. And that area is known for redwood trees, which are some of the tallest trees in the world, magnificent. And fire has swept through the Big Basin Redwood um, forest. And it's caused a lot of alarm because here are these trees that have been alive for hundreds, if not thousands of years, some upwards of two to 300 feet. And they've been charred. And they've been burned. And to see photos of that area is devastating. To see these magnificent trees. Because if you've never seen a tree that's two or 300 feet, you, you just think it's a tree. But then when you stand at the base of something that looks like a building that you would see downtown, Boston, you walk away with a different sense of awe. And this area was completely ravaged by the fire that was still going on. And yet what's interesting and that's had to be stated in the aftermath of this fire is that you don't get to be a tree that lives hundreds of years or thousands of years um, by getting burned down. In fact, it's estimated based on what's called dendrochronology, which is the study of like tree rings and kind of the history of the tree, uh, that about every 40 years this area um, has a, f a fire that goes back hundreds of years. Indigenous people, um, when they, they occupied the area, there were fires that occurred regularly, both with lightning and with um, kind of burned brush fires. And yet the trees somehow continued to grow. They continued to, to, to get larger and larger. And the reason why is that redwoods are incredibly resilient. And I think in the picture of their resilience is some wisdom for us that points back to Paul's words. That what makes a redwood so resilient is that the bark around it is ridiculously thick the bark around it is so thick that it's essentially fire resistant that fire can sweep through a forest and burn literally char the trees and it does not destroy them the trees live and it's not just the toughness of the bark it's also the the uniqueness of what's underneath that bark the life that's present inside of a redwood redwoods are incredibly resilient if you chop a redwood down, 10 redwood sprouts will pop up out of the tree trunk. That's how you live hundreds, if not thousands of years. <clears throat> and when Paul is talking and explaining and giving a picture of what does it look like to be someone who can go in day in, day out in a city like Ephesus and live out the faith, 
I think a redwood is a beautiful picture. When you recognize the world is evil, when you recognize the default is to drift, when you recognize the default is difficult, it builds a toughness. You're not surprised when the relationship is hard. You're not surprised when things pop up. You're not surprised that discipline and diligence is required to overcome the difficulty of the world. But he's reminded them in a passage before what we read earlier that the same challenge, in fact, the same word when he says redeem is the same word he uses when he talks about how God had redeemed them. He's telling us to redeem the moments we have because God stepped into earth to redeem us too. He's like, why can, why can I call you to redeem the moments you find yourself in? Because the God who you follow did that for you. That God, he saw the opportunity to redeem you and he took it through a cross. One of my mentors who passed away about seven years ago, um, he had this saying where he would always call, he wouldn't call his alarm clock an alarm clock. He called it his opportunity clock. Because he said when it beeped in the morning, it was, it was his reminder that he was waking up with a day that was filled with opportunities that only he could take today. And his goal when, even in the midst of going through um, really rare um, diagnosis of, of this extremely rare cancer, and even through the difficult days of chemo and radiation, he would wake up with the expectation that if the if the clock buzzed, it meant there were opportunities for me that day. And his goal was to go to bed that night, having seized the opportunities that that day held, that no other day could hold. And if he could do that, going to bed, knowing he'd seized the opportunity, then for him, that was a good day. And for some of you, you may say, well, I don't have opportunities in my day. Yeah, you do. Sometimes we miss them because they're so small. We miss the conversation that we could have with our neighbor or that we could have with a friend or with our kids or with our spouse. And that that little moment can compound and grow day over day of seizing those opportunities where we we're, we're practice vulnerability in our most important relationships, where we choose honesty instead of deceit, where we choose discipline and saving over spending and clicking and buying when we don't have it. Like those opportunities are opportunities that we can seize. And just because they're small doesn't mean the outcome will be small. Great things are built on the steps of little tiny moments and the steps that you take in them. You don't build a great relationship overnight. You don't build a great financial situation overnight. You don't have a dynamic relationship with your kids when they're adults overnight. It's the little moments during the day that you seize, that you see, and that you grab hold of. And that for some of us in this season, instead of kind of fixating and focusing on, oh my goodness, remote school again, or oh my goodness, this pandemic is still going on, or oh my goodness, social media feeds are crazy. Let's, like I said a few weeks ago, focus on what you can control. Grab hold of those moments. Say, you know what? I'm going to help my kids have the best remote learning experience they can. I'm, it may not be great, but it'll be good enough and it'll be better than what we had in the spring. And that's what I'm going to seize each day. For some of you, financially, had that stimulus check not come, you might have been in a really dark financial spot. And so, 
Maybe for you what the opportunity looks like is saying, you know what, I'm, I've talked about a budget, but I'm actually going to make one. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be diligent in it. But there are a million different applications of what this looks like to be diligent and disciplined and grabbing a hold of the opportunities that you have today that you might not get any other day. And the reason ultimately we can have that type of expectation, the reason we can have that kind of hope regardless of what our days look like is because there was that day on when Friday when he was crucified and the disciples, some of them weren't even around the, the graveside when they put his body in because they were filled with disappointment. But like Peter and like John and like eventually Paul would come to realize that Friday's disappointment turned into Sunday's empty tomb, a dead crucified rabbi came back resurrected when you recognize that what was killed on friday came back to life on sunday it starts to change how you see the moments you have in front of you you realize that like god has woken me up god has given me this day and there is a reason that he allowed me to wake up today and i'm going to make sure that when i go to bed i go to bed as someone who grabbed a hold of those moments to be faithful to live for him to, to live out his will. And when he says understand what Lord's will is, he's not talking about these specific things like, oh, what job should I have or who should I marry? He's talking about all the stuff that Paul's already written about of living out our faith and what that looks like. Because Friday's disappointment turned into sin, Sunday's empty tomb. And that can happen for you and for me too. That's what our faith brings. It brings a hope. It brings a potential. And a possibility of knowing that God can take even my darkest grief, that God can take even my most lonely season, and he can bring something out of it. He can birth something from there. And that as a church, we want to kind of walk alongside of you. That's why over the last couple of weeks, you've heard me start talking about groups, and you've heard me start talking about some of the new things we're doing. In fact, this week, Jason sent out an email um, just pointing people to encounterchurch.com forward slash groups because we were starting some new digital groups. Um, so many of you answered the survey. It was really helpful. Um, so we have groups that are going to happen on Sunday morning. We're going to have groups that happen during the evenings. And we're going to have groups that um, happen digitally because some of us aren't able to physically be present for groups. And that one of the things that can be possible that we, we really do this fall desire to be able to start opening our doors, to reopen our doors, to allow people to physically be in this room. But one of the challenges, even in that, is that we, we have to have enough people on our team back because there's a team behind the camera in this room, and then there's a whole other team that's in the room allowing you to hear what we do. In fact, if I'm, I'm like the, the, like I'm expendable because if I didn't show up, this could still happen. But if they didn't show up, you wouldn't hear me speak right now. You wouldn't see me. And for us, for some of you, um, maybe for some of you who really desperately want to be back in this room, I want to I want to challenge you and encourage you to go to EncounterChurch.com forward slash roof. Like that's a kind of back to a, a few weeks ago when I used this illustration of, of us trying the roof and being creative. But for some of you, if you've got any technological abilities, we would love to come alongside and train you. Because for us to be able to reopen on Sunday mornings to allow people to come into this room per the state's guidelines, we have to have more team members serving and facilitating for that to even happen. And so I would encourage you to go and encounterchurch.com 
porch slash roof. There's a lot of different opportunities because when we group, when we serve, when we give, when we, when we engage with God in faith, something happens. When we go beyond ourselves, oftentimes we find that one of God's great ideas was that the church is not a what, but it's a who. It's a collection of people and that through those people, God shines through them. That nobody has the full corner, no one person has the full corner, but God seems to be present in the group of people. And that's why last week I introduced this number. And I just want to be really clear because um, I wanted to send some books and I'm going to do that. But before I do that, um, if you signed up and you didn't get anything from me this week, there was one other step you needed to do. Because one of my desires, when Paul writes the word live, and it's actually the word walk, it's this interesting word that I really like a lot that I won't get into. But the idea is that as you walk along and... Um, so I created this, this format, this text number, because I wanted to, as I go through the course of my week, um, I wanted to be able to kind of go, come alongside of you in your week. And so if there's a way I could pray for you, could text this number, I get it immediately. Um, if, um, if I saw something like this week, I stopped on the side of the road um, and I filmed a, a short video in front of a, like a roadside garden that just inspired people and, and encouraged people to like keep, keep pressing forward. Um, that one of the ways we break through our past is to go through our past to get to the future we desire. And that, um, so I want to do those kind of things. And in order to do that, um, for you, um, 617-415-4441, you text that number. And here's the crucial step, because I don't think everybody did this this last last week because there was a disconnect. Um, When you text that number, you're going to get this automated response from me saying, hey, thanks so much for texting this number. Can you click on this link? And there'll be a link there where you fill out a a brief little form. And that's my like legal way because there's really strict guidelines and laws about um, using computers to text people because obvious reasons like robocalls. So you actually have to fill out that form in order for me to be able to text you. So if you texted that number last week, 617-415-4441, and you didn't click on the link that got sent back to you and fill it out and save it, then um, that's why you're not getting anything. So I, I'd like to send the, the books this week um, and also um, start to kind of be a little bit more aggressive in my um, sending you messages. But I noticed with the disconnect, because I can see the back end, that that didn't happen. So 617-415-4441, click the link. Because my desire is for you and I to stop reliving Groundhog Day. And I want to do everything that I can do to walk alongside of you. This church wants to do everything that we can do while we're not able to to physically gather, to still have some type of physical connection and to be socially connected and spiritually connected so that we can stop repeating Groundhog Day, stop reliving Groundhog Day and start grabbing a hold of our day.